The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter 3, Voyage of Discovery. I was roused at the dawn of day by the crowing of the cocks. I awoke my wife, and we consulted together as to the occupations we should engage in. We agreed that we should seek for traces of our late ship companions, and at the same time examine the nature of the soil on the other side of the river before we determined on a fixed place of abode. My wife easily perceived that such an excursion could not be undertaken by all the members of the family, and full of confidence in the protection of heaven, she courageously consented to my proposal of leaving her with the three youngest boys, and proceeding myself with Fritz on a journey of discovery. I entreated her not to lose a moment in giving us our breakfast. She gave us notice that the share of each would be but small, there being no more soup prepared. What then, I asked, is to become of Jack's lobster? That he can best tell you himself, answered his mother. But now, pray, step and awake the boys, while I make a fare and put on some water. The children were soon roused. Even, one, even our slothful earnest submitted to the hard fate of rising so early in the morning. When I asked Jack for his lobster, he ran and fetched it from a cleft in the rock in which he had concealed it. I was determined, said he, that the dogs should not treat my lobster as they did the agouti, for I knew them for a sort of gentleman to whom nothing comes amiss. I am glad to see, son Jack, said I, that the giddy head upon your shoulders can be prevailed upon to reflect. Happy is he who knows how to profit by the misfortunes of others, says the proverb. But will you not kindly give Fritz the great claw which bit your leg, though I promised it to you, to carry with him for his dinner in our journey? What journey? asked all the boys at once. Ah, we will go too. A journey, a journey, repeated they, clapping their hands and jumping round me like little kids. For this time, said I, it is impossible for all of you to go. We know not yet what we are to set about. Whither we are going, your eldest brother and myself shall be better able to defend ourselves in any danger without you. Besides that, with so many persons we could proceed but slowly. You will then all three remain with your mother in this place, which appears to be one of perfect safety, and you shall keep Flora to be your guard, while we will take Turk with us. With such a protector and a gun well loaded, who shall dare treat us with disrespect? Make haste, Fritz, and tie up Flora, that she may not follow us, and have your eye on Turk, that he may be at hand to accompany us, and see the guns are ready. At the word guns, the color rose in the cheeks of my poor boy. His gun was so bent as to be of no use. He took it up and tried in vain to straighten it. I let him alone for a short time, but at length I gave him leave to take another, perceiving with pleasure that the vexation had produced a proper feeling in his mind. A moment after, he attempted to lay hold on Flora to tie her up, but the doll recollecting the blows she had so lately received, began to snarl and would not go near him. Turk behaved the same, and I found it necessary to call with my own voice to induce them to approach us. Fritz then, in tears, entreated for some biscuit of his mother, declaring that he would willingly go without his breakfast to make his peace with the dogs. He accordingly carried them some biscuit. 
stroked and caressed them, and in every motion seemed to ask their pardon. As of all animals, without accepting man, the dog is least addicted to revenge, and at the same time is the most sensible of kind usage. Flora instantly relented, and began to lick the hands which fed her, but Turk, who was of a more fierce and independent temper, still held off, and seemed to feel a want of confidence in Fritz's advances. "'Give him a claw of my lobster,' cried Jack, "'for I mean to give it all to you for your journey.' "'I cannot think why you should give it all,' interrupted Ernest, "'for you need not be uneasy about their journey. "'Like Robinson Crusoe, they will be sure enough to find some coconuts, "'which they will like much better than your miserable lobster. "'Only think, a fine round nut, Jack, as big as my head, "'and with at least a teacup full of delicious sweet milk in it. "'Oh, Brother Fritz, pray do bring me some,' cried little Francis.' We now prepared for our departure. We took each a bag for game and a hatchet. I put a pair of pistols in the leather band round Fritz's waist, in addition to the gun, and provided myself with the same articles, not forgetting a stock of biscuit and a flask of fresh river water. My wife now called us to breakfast when all attacked the lobster, but its flesh proved so hard that there was a great deal left when our meal was finished and we packed it for our journey without further regret from anyone. The sea lobster is an animal of considerable size, and its flesh is much more nutritious, but less delicate than the common lobster. Fritz urged me to set out before the excessive heat came on. With all my heart, said I, but we have forgotten one thing. What is that? asked Fritz, looking round him. I see nothing to do but to take leave of my mother and my brothers. I know what it is, cried Ernest. We have not said our prayers this morning. That is the very thing, my dear boy, said I. We are too apt to forget God, the giver of all, for the affairs of this world, and yet never had we so much need of his care, particularly at the moment of undertaking a journey in an unknown soil. Upon this our pickle jack began to imitate the sound of church bells and to call, Bomey, bomey, bibby bomey, bibby ban bomey, to prayers, to prayers, bomey, bomey. Thoughtless boy, cried I, with, with a look of displeasure, when, oh, when will you be sensible of that sacredness and devotion that banishes for the time every thought of levity or amusement? Recollect yourself, and let me not have again to reprove you on a subject of so grave a nature. In about an hour we had completed the preparations for our departure. I had loaded the guns we left behind, and I now enjoined my wife to keep by day as near the boat as possible, which in case of danger was the best and most speedy means of escape. My next concern was to shorten the moment of separation, judging by my own feelings those of my dear wife, for neither could be without painful apprehensions of what new misfortune might occur on either side during the interval. We all melted into tears. I seized this instant for drawing Fritz away, and in a few moments the sobs and often repeated adieus of those we left behind died away in the noise of the waves which we now approached, and which turned our thoughts upon ourselves and the immediate object of our journey. The banks of the river were everywhere steep and difficult, excepting at one narrow slip near the mouth on our side where we had drawn our fresh water. The other side presented an unbroken line of sharp, high, perpendicular rocks. We therefore followed the course of the river till we arrived at a cluster of rocks, at which the stream formed a cascade, 
A few paces beyond we found some large fragments of rock, which had fallen into the bed of the river. By stepping upon these and making now and then some hazardous leaps, we contrived to reach the other side. We proceeded a short way along the rock we ascended in landing, forcing ourselves a passage through tall grass, which twined with other plants and were rendered more capable of resisting by being half dried by the sun. Perceiving, however, that walking on this kind of surface in so hot a sun would exhaust our strength, we looked for a path to descend and proceed along the river, where we hoped to meet with fewer obstacles and perhaps to discover traces of our ship companions. When we had walked about a hundred paces, we heard a loud noise behind us, as if we were pursued, and perceiving a rustling motion in the grass, which was almost as tall as ourselves, I was a good deal alarmed, thinking that it might be occasioned by some frightful serpent, a tiger, or other ferocious animal. But I was well satisfied with Fritz, who instead of being frightened and running away, stood still and firm to face the danger, the only motion he made being to see that his piece was ready, and turning himself to front the spot from whence the noise proceeded. Our alarm was, however, short. For what? was our joy on seeing rush out not an enemy but our faithful Turk who in the distress of the parting scene we had forgotten and whom no doubt our anxious relatives had sent on to us. I received the poor creature with lively joy and did not fail to recommend both the bravery and discretion of my son in not yielding to even a rational alarm and for waiting till he was sure of the object before he resolved to fare. Had he done otherwise, he might have destroyed an animal likely to afford us various kinds of aid, and to contribute by the kindness of his temper to the pleasures of our domestic scene. Observe, my dear boy, said I, to what dangers the tumult of the passion exposes us. The anger which overpowered you yesterday, and the error natural to the occasion we have this moment witnessed. If you had unfortunately given way to it, might either of them have produced an irretrievable misfortune? Fritz assured me he was sensible of the truth and importance of my remarks, that he would watch constantly over the defects of his temper, and then he fell to caressing the faithful and interesting animal. Conversing on such subjects as these, we pursued our way. On our left was the sea, and on our right the continuation of the ridge of rocks which began at the place of our landing, and ran along the shore, the summit everywhere adorned with fresh verdure and a great variety of trees. We were careful to proceed in a course as near the shore as possible, casting our eyes alternately upon its smooth expanse and upon the land in all directions to discover our ship companions or the boats which had conveyed them from us, but our endeavors were in vain. Fritz proposed to fire his gun from time to time, that should they be anywhere concealed near us, they might thus be led to know of our pursuit. This would be vastly well, I observed, if, if you could contrive that the savages, who are most likely not far distant, should not hear the sound, and come in numbers upon us. I am thinking, father, interrupted Fritz, that there is no good reason why we should give ourselves so much trouble and uneasiness about persons who abandon us so cruelly, thought only of their own safety. 
There is not only one good reason, but many, replied I. First, we should not return evil for evil. Next, it may be in their power to assist us. And lastly, they are perhaps at this moment in the greatest want of assistance. It was their lot to escape with nothing but life from the ship. If indeed they are still alive, while we had the good fortune to secure provisions, enough for present subsistence to a share of which they are as fully entitled as ourselves. But father, while we are wandering here and losing our time almost without a hope of benefit to them, might we not be better employed in returning to the vessel and saving the animals on board? When a variety of duties present themselves for our choice, we should always give the preference to that which can confer the most solid advantage. The saving of the life of a man is a more exalted action than the contributing to the comfort of a few quadrupeds, whom we have already supplied with food for several days, particularly as the sea is in so calm a state that we need entertain no apprehension that the ship will sink or go entirely to pieces just at present. My son made no reply to what I said, and we seemed by mutual silent consent to take a few moments for reflection. When we had gone about two leagues, we entered a wood situated a little further from the sea. Here we threw ourselves on the ground, under the shade of a tree, by the side of a running stream, and took out some provisions and refreshed ourselves. We heard the chirping, singing, and motion of birds in the trees, and observed as they now and then came out to view that they were more attractive by their splendid plumage than by any charm of note. Fritz assured me that he had caught a glimpse of some animals like apes among the bushes, and this was confirmed by the restless movements of Turk, who began to smell about him and to bark so loud that the wood resounded with the noise. Fritz stole softly about to be sure, and presently stumbled on a small round body which lay on the ground. He brought it to me, observing that it must be the nest of some bird. "'What makes you of that opinion?' said I. "'It is, I think, much more like a coconut.' But I have read that there are some kinds of birds which build their nests quite round, and look, fa father, how the outside is crossed and twined. But do you not perceive that what you take from for straws crossed and twined by the beak of a bird is in fact a coat of fibers formed by the hand of nature? Do you not remember to have read that the nut of a coca shell is enclosed within a round fibrous covering, which is again surrounded by skin of a thin and fragile texture. I see that in the one you hold in your hand, this skin has been destroyed by time, which is the reason that the twisted fibers, or any inner covering, are so apparent. But now let us break the shell, and you will see the nut inside. We soon accomplished this, but the nut, alas, from lying on the ground, had perished and appeared but little different from a bit of dried skin, and not the le least inviting to the palate. Fritz was more amused at this adventure. How I wish Ernest could have been here, cried he. How he envied me the fine large coconuts I was to find, and the whole teacup full of delicious milk, which was to spring out upon me from the inside. But father, I myself believed that the coconut contained a sweet refreshing liquid, a little like the juice of almonds. Travelers surely tell untruths. Travelers certainly do sometimes tell untruths, but not, I believe, on the subject of the coconut, which is well known to contain the liquid you describe just before they are in a state of ripeness. 
It is the same with our European nuts, with the difference of quantity, and one property is common to both, that is, the nut ripens, the milk diminishes, but by thickening and becoming the same substance as the nut. If you put a ripe nut a little way under the earth in a good soil, the kernel will shoot and burst the shell. But if it remain above ground or in a place that does not suit its nature, the principle of vegetation is extinguished by internal fermentation, and the nut perishes as you have seen. I am now surprised that this principle is not extinguished in every nut, for the shell is so hard it seems impossible for a softer substance to break it. The peach stone is no less hard. The kernel, notwithstanding, never fails to break it if it is placed in a well-nurtured soil. Now I begin to understand. The peach stone is divided into two parts, like a mussel shell. It has a kind of seam round it, which separates of itself when the kernel is swelled by moisture. But the coconut in my hand is not so divided, and I cannot conceive of its separating. I grant that the coconut is differently formed. But you may see by the fragments you have just thrown on the ground that nature has in another manner stepped into its assistance. Look near the stalk, and you will discover three round holes, which are not like the rest of its surface, covered with a hard, impenetrable shell, but are stopped by a spongy kind of matter. It is through these that the kernel shoots. Now, Father, I have the fancy of gathering all the pieces together and giving them to Ernest and telling him these particulars. I wonder what he will say about it and how he will like the withered nut. Now, the fancy of your father, my dear boy, would be to find you without so keen a relish for a bit of mischief. Joke with Ernest, if you will, about the withered nut, but I should like to see you heal the disappointment he will feel by presenting him at least with a sound and perfect nut, provided we should have one to spare. After looking for some time, we had the good luck to meet one single nut. We opened it, and finding it sound, we sat down and ate it for our dinner, by which means we were enabled to hu husband the provisions we had brought. The nut, it is true, was a little oily and rancid, yet as this was not a time to be nice, we made a hearty meal and then continued our route. We did not quit the wood, but pushed our way across it, being often obliged to cut a path through the bushes, overrun by creeping plants with our hatchet. At length we reached a plain, which afforded a more extensive prospect and a path less perplexed and intricate. We next entered a forest to the right, and soon observed that some of the trees were of a singular kind. Fritz, whose sharp eye was continually on a journey of discovery, went up to examine them closely. Oh, father, what odd trees, with winds growing all about their trunks! I had soon the surprise and satisfaction of assuring him that they were of the gourd tree kind, the trunks of which bear fruit. Fritz, who had never heard of such a tree, could not conceive the meaning of what he saw, and asked me if the fruit was a sponge or a wen. We will see, I replied, if we cannot unravel the mystery, try to get down one of them, and we will examine it minutely. I have got one, cried Fritz, and it is exactly like a gourd, only the rind is thicker and harder. It then, like the rind of that fruit, can be used for making various utensils, I observed I. Plates, dishes, basins, flasks. We will give it the name of the gourd tree. Fritz jumped for joy. How happy my mother will be, cried he in ecstasy. She will no longer have the vexation of thinking 
when she makes soup that we should all scald our fingers. What, my boy, do you think is the reason that this tree bears its fruit only on the trunk and on its topmost branches? I think it must be because the middle branches are too feeble to support such a weight. You have guessed exactly right. But are these gourds good to eat? At worst, they are, I believe, harmless. But they have not a very tempting flavor. The savages set as much value on the rind of this fruit as on gold, for its use to them is indispensable. These rinds serve them to keep their food and drink in, and sometimes they even cook their victuals in them. Oh, father, it must be impossible to cook their victuals in them, for the heat of the fire would soon consume such a substance. I did not say the rind was put upon the fire. How droll! Pray, how are victuals to be cooked without fire? Nor did I say that victuals could be cooked without a fire, but there is no need to put the vessel that contains the food upon the fire. I have no idea what you mean. There seems to be a miracle. So be it, my son. A little tincture of it. Of enchantment is the lot of man. When he finds himself deficient in intelligence or is too indolent to give himself the trouble to reflect, he is driven by his weakness to ascribe to a miracle or to witchcraft what is most likely nothing but the most ordinary operation of art or nature. Well, father, I will then believe in what you tell me of these rhymes. That is, you will cut the matter short by resolving to be sure on the word of another. This is a good way to let your own reason follow. Come, come, no such idleness. Let me help you to understand this amazing phenomenon. When it is intended to dress food in one of these rinds, the process is to cut the fruit into two equal parts and scoop out the inside. Some water is put into one of the halves and into the water, some fish, a crab, or whatever else is to be dressed. Then some stones, red hot, beginning with one at a time, are thrown in, which impart sufficient heat to the water to dress the food without the smallest injury to the pot. But is not the food spoiled by ashes falling in or by pieces of the heated stones separating in the water? Certainly it is not easy to make fair sauce, fine sauces or ragouts in such a vessel, but a dressing of the meat is actually accomplished. But I can imagine a tolerable remedy for even the objection you have found. The food might be enclosed in a vessel small enough to be contained in our capacious half of a gourd, and thus be cooked upon the principle so much used in chemistry, the application of a milder heat than fire. And this method of cooking has also another advantage, that the thing contained cannot adhere to the sides or bottom of the vessel. We next proceeded to the manufacture of our plates and dishes. I taught my son how to divide the gourd with a bit of string, which would cut more equally than a knife. I tied the string round the middle of the gourd as tight as possible, striking it pretty hard with the handle of my knife, and I drew tighter and tighter till the gourd fell apart, forming two regular shaped bowls or vessels. While Fritz, who had used a knife for the same operation, had entirely spoiled his gourd by the irregular pressure of his instrument. I recommended this making, his making us some spoons with the spoiled rind, as it was good for no other purpose. I, on my part, had soon completed two dishes of convenient size and some smaller ones to serve as plates. Fritz was in the utmost astonishment at my success. I cannot imagine, father, said he, how this way of cutting the gourd could occur to you. I've read the description of such a process, replied I, in books of travels, and also that such of the 
of the people as have no knives and who make a sort of twine from the bark of trees are accustomed to use it for this kind of purpose. So you see what benefit may be derived from reading and from afterwards reflecting on what we read? And the flask is father, in what manner are they made? For this branch of their ingenuity they make preparation a long time beforehand. If a person wishes to have a flask or bottle with a neck, he binds a piece of string, linen bark, or a tree of a tree, or anything he can get, round the part nearest the stalk of a very young gourd. He draws this bandage so tight that the part at liberty soon forms itself to a round shape, while the part which is confined contracts and remains ever after narrow. By this method it is that they obtain flasks or bottles of a perfect form. Are then the bottle-shaped gourds I have seen in Europe trained by similar preparation? No, they are of another species, and what you have seen is their natural shape. Our conversation and our labor thus went on together. Fritz had completed some plates and was not a little proud of the achievement. Ah, oh, how delighted my mother will be to eat upon them, cried he. But how shall we convey them to her? They will not, I fear, bear traveling well. We must leave them here on the sand for the sun to dry them thoroughly. This will be accomplished by the time of our return this way, and we can carry th then carry them with us. But care must be taken to fill them with sand, that they may not shrink or warp in so ardent a heat. My boy did not dislike this task, for he had no great fancy to the idea of carrying such a load on our journey of further discovery. Our sumptuous service of porcelain was accordingly spread upon the ground, for the present abandoned to its fate.